and we're Kerber's Kids. The Kids Talk, your monthly graphic novel review. Now that we're on our literary aisle, let's give a bit of a synopsis, if you will, our general impressions of this six-issue story arc. JJ, what were your initial impressions of this work after you had taken it in and fully grasped where Moore had taken us as readers? So Moore starts off with a bit of a slow burn. We don't quite know everything and you get a sense that everybody's waiting for the other shoe to drop. So the first few issues start out with gathering together members that would form the league. And you have a traveling from place to place. The main character doing this is Mina Harker, who was born Nina Murray and has adopted her maiden name again after the events of that transpired in the Dracula novel. And she's working on behalf of the British intelligence to assemble these people together. She gets teamed up with none other than Captain Nemo, travels to Cairo to locate Alan Quartermain, and then to Paris in search of Dr. Jekyll. And then finally, she comes to London and recruits none other than Holly Griffin, the Invisible Man. So all of these characters are brought together because there's a need for their their expertise and that the the entire land is in danger so they have to protect queen and country and all the while because they're pretty sharp characters they get the sense that they're not getting all the information and that's when things start to accelerate and you start to see who they're dealing with and the people that they're up against and all of the action and adventure and then by the time we get to the end of this there is a full-blown battle in the skies over london and it is an immense battle which started as a quiet gathering of personnel turns into this just epic and bombastic battle in the skies over in the skies over london that probably wouldn't be seen again or they actually would pale by comparison the blitzkrieg of world war ii because here you had all manner of flying contraptions and i'll i'll save the rest of that when we get into the art of this it it really just sucks you in and if you're paying attention every little character has some tie back to 
some tie back to a story. For example, when they go to Paris to find Dr. Jekyll, they encounter the detective from arguably the first detective story written by Poe, Murder in the Rogue Gallery. It's it's just amazing. They're like everything. He pulls out all of the stops to give you such a star-studded cast that he pulls from everywhere. Yeah, the cuts are deep on this one, as far as not only the sources of inspiration that Moore turns to, but like you just brought out there, JJ, what would appear to be obscure literary characters just seamlessly woven into the narrative beautifully. And what also got me is that every one of these members of the League has a unique point of view. The most unique being Captain Nemo, in my humble opinion. He is the voice of anti-colonialism in this one. And some of his dialogue is most entertaining as far as begrudgingly supporting this cast that has been hired and brought on board by British intelligence. And the the dialogue out of him is just so rich. I absolutely love the Captain Nemo character. I agree. He is a one of the linchpins in the entire story. And I think really hit the nail on the head here. Everybody has such a distinctive perspective that you don't have a family at the end of this. You don't have a tightly knit group. You have a group of people who are working together because they are tasked to do it. And maybe some of them want to make sure that London is protected. And I think everything ties back to Crown and you know, citizens of the crown in some way. It it really is really good because it's a dysfunctional family to say to say the least, but it is exciting and it is intense. I really found myself just gripped by this story. And you know, it it's a page turner. Once you start it, you don't want to you don't want to stop. Oh, it definitely is a page turner. It is, it's gripping. And just to emphasize that dysfunction, if I'm not mistaken, the character of Alan uh, Quartermain here is just an outright drug addict, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He spent too many years in the opium dens. Yeah, indeed. So in stark contrast to that character that of the great hunter that was portrayed in the movie by Sean Connery. So you begin to see a departure here in how this graphic novel was then translated onto the big screen. And frankly, I love these original depictions by Moore because, man, the flavor amongst all of these different characters really comes through loud and clear. And I have to compliment Alan on a strong female character in Mina holding this group together. She does. She is a force of nature, which is really, really refreshing to see in the comic book panels. And you get the sense that everybody is aware that there is so much more to her, that they they treat her with not kid gloves, but they know that at any moment because of what she's experienced, that she can go into maybe not a rage, but definitely she's someone to be feared. She is so intense and so forthright in in her thinking. I think what really makes this interesting is the fact that everybody has their flaws and they're more evident than polished heroes of, well, let's just say the movie that was 
you know, made from this. But, you know, other typical comic books, right? Graphic novels, the shining heroes that, you know, never do any, never do any harm and don't even get anything on their uniforms. This is dirty. It's, it's hard to read sometimes. I mean, there's some scenes in here that are quite graphic. And I don't know that we'll we'll talk about them in detail, but brutal in in some cases. And it's just it's it's a darker, grittier reality that they live in. And taking these characters, and I think that more is being true to the underlying original characters, but then taking them further. And we've seen him do this with tried and true characters like Swamp Thing, where he takes the kernel of what they were and then transforms them into something beyond. Yeah, that is a perfect encapsulation of what he does in a most effective transformation on these characters. And JJ, with Dr. Jekyll, you've got Mr. Hyde. Mr. Hyde is absolutely vicious in this. A, an absolute brute of a violent machine. And then when you look at Holly Griffin, pretty much he can move around unfettered. And it is that constant reminder of conscience, if you will, in trying to keep him in check because, hey, he's the invisible man. He could pretty much come and go as he pleases and be undetected by many of them. And the members of the league remind him of that on many an occasion and his ability to come in and out of things really exposes the reader to as you brought out a seedier side of society for sure in this i mean there is not a taboo that is isn't touched on as far as major taboos are concerned of the day and because of that this is definitely a mature audience read no doubt about that but i think it's not done grotesquely Everything that Alan Moore portrays here in the pages and then it is excellently rendered by Kevin O'Neill is just on point and serves the story so well. It, absolutely. Are we ready to jump into the art? Yeah, let, let's do this. I, I can't contain myself any anymore, JJ, because this was by far one of the most enjoyable reads visually out of any of these three now going on seasons of Kirby's Kids reading graphic novels. I absolutely loved the reading experience from the visual storytelling perspective. How about you? Uh, absolutely. So one of the one of the joys of reading this is you're going to read it a couple times and maybe I should come at it from my perspective. I read it a couple times and here's why. The first is you're going to read through it just to get the story. You want to get the characters, know who's who, understand what they're talking about, what do they stand for, what what won't they stand for, and you're just going to read through in the story. Then you're going to go back and you're going to appreciate the art because there is so much detail in every panel. I can't imagine how he was able to put so much detail into each and every panel. O'Neill is amazing here. When you look at Nemo's ship, there is so much scroll work and design and art and artifice and everything looks amazing. And then you look at the London of this time and buildings are teetering and they're held up by scaffolding and there's all this new construction and it's amazing all the things that are, are going on here and you just 
you want to take in every panel because there's so much information. He's telling you so much about the world and the way people dress. And there's no detail that is too small. There is no detail that is too small. And I don't know how they worked together on this. I know that in at times more is very, very particular and would write out what has to be in the panel. But talk about a collaboration. It was amazing the way the words and the art work together. Um, and the way that facial expressions help sell the scene. There was this wonderful, wonderful penmanship to all of the art that just, just blew me away. Yeah, I will 100% endorse everything you just said there. And to give another example of what you're driving at, JJ, at the start of issue number three, Mysteries of the East, you have our members of the League sitting at a table with Mina at the head, and they are partaking in whatever drink, food, vice you could think of. And there is on full display what each one of their dependencies are or likes are revealed on that table in vivid detail. None of it addressed in the narrative whatsoever, but a lot revealed on that table right there by O'Neill and just does a fantastic job with things just like that, JJ, because you can't just read this graphic novel and be, oh, okay, that's fine. That's great. You truly have to stop and look at every panel because there is so much that comes through in the visuals that reveals that much more about every one of these characters. And just the level of consistency and continuity that he really worked at. So early in an encounter with Mr. Hyde, the Ellen Quartermain fires off a gun and shoots off part of Hyde's ear. Later, when he transforms back into Dr. Jekyll, his ear is bandaged. And then later still, when he comes back as, as Hyde, the ear is still damaged, but you can tell that it's healing a little bit. But it's no, you know, it never, never reforms itself. It's not regenerative, but the, just the level of detail that he brings that he brings with that and then taking it to an extreme the it's caricature in a sense and if you've ever seen his work on martial law you you'll recognize this but the the body type that is mr hyde is over exaggerated but what it's meant to convey is his raw animalistic power the ability to destroy virtually anything he gets his hands on in comparison to the quiet still slight figure of mina murray who never flinches at his outbursts and just really really amazing it it's amazing what the the man does with these characters. Yeah, indeed. And of course, for Mina, she's seen monsters before, specifically that of Dracula. So he's I, I love her rather. Huh, OK, I've I've seen worse than you. I've survived worse than you. And that is a that is so well uh, translated on the comic book page visually she is, oh, I'm not impressed, but I, 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 I respect you and what you're bringing to the table here, uh, Mr. Hyde, but you know, you, you don't intimidate me. 
JJ, something else that I loved about this, and you brought it up earlier, was the depiction of London and specifically the different sections of London. That Limehouse layer where you have that den in there of of the doctor who is the you know the big bad if you will or the focus uh because there is a little little baiting and switching here back and forth as far as the reveals are concerned but we're not going to get into that no spoilers because we want you to read this but i loved that again attention to detail between the different sections of the city you as a reader feeling immersed into those sections of the city, particularly as it related to a different culture being portrayed there. That whole Limehouse area being very much Chinese influenced and you get those flavors in there. And of course, all of the city being on full display with the epic battle that takes place at the end of this graphic novel, which is absolutely spectacular. I cannot overemphasize how incredible that is to take in on the pages just really beautiful work by o'neill well and something should be said as well about the coloring because the the finished product is only partially o'neill when you add the colors to it the tones are muted they're neutrals they they tend to in, kind of invoke a gritty griminess to to everything there's a real lack of bright bright colors until you get into kind of the chinatown area then you get to see some pops of red and when you're in the nemo's nautilus you've got some wonderful blues and greens and metallics that you know the color just evokes so much emotion in the setting and is rendered in such a way as to complement O'Neill's art. Scenes where they're carrying a candle and that's their only source of light and the way it throws shadows everywhere. Just so well done. And really, this is just quite a creative achievement for all parties involved. And, you know, add to this that not only do we get this beautiful melding of word and images, but then we've got a complete textual story to back it up. That is, you know, Moore's kind of, I, I would call it Moore's signature. I mean, it really, to me, when I read Watchmen and every issue of Watchmen had this literary piece in the back of it, really kind of hit home than reading The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and having a literary piece, Alan and the Sundered Veil, going with it as well. And just really a particular combination to flesh out in other ways the story that he wants to tell, focusing in on key figures and bringing in even more characters from that literary era. JJ, great point in pulling in Alan and the Sundered Veil that indeed provided wonderful context, history, backstory for this, making it even more real and immersing the reader. I'll also point out, just at the very beginning of this graphic novel, you have Alan Moore providing the credits for the book, and it's all written in a promotional piece that one would see outside of a theater or 
uh, performance of some kind. And he's utilizing the Victorian language of the day to, from the get-go, in the credits, the opening credits, get the reader immersed into the book. And specifically, I went there because we were talking about the fantastic coloring job that was done on this book. And that's Mr. Benedict Dimagmelu. I believe that is the pronunciation, and I apologize if I mispronounced your name, but just a great job by Mr. D here in providing the really, really, really great coloring job to this work that, as you said, JJ, really gets you into the grittiness of this graphic novel. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's... We can continue to gush on it. I think the only cautionary word I would say is the subject matter. As we mentioned, it can get fairly graphic and violent, as well as graphic in a sexual nature. So this is not a book I would recommend for children, obviously. I would definitely say, you know, probably older teens and up. It's a very adult book. It sometimes challenges the senses as you're reading it but it's it's definitely meant to like mr hyde you know go to the extremes of what could be maybe in contrast of the way that these novels were first written so taking these characters and writing them with a 21st century approach to it and sensibility as opposed to the more subdued and restrained sensibilities of the 19th and 18th century. Indeed, JJ, indeed. Moore definitely scrapes away the genteel nature of the Victorian era to expose the seedy underbelly of what was going on amongst those living at the times, and it is on full display. Good, bad, and very ugly. So, I also wholeheartedly endorse your recommendation with regard to the reading of this. This is definitely a mature graphic novel. Would not recommend this for for kids. You have to have a certain amount of sensibility. And I also wouldn't recommend it for someone who has experienced something in their lifetime that perhaps was very alarming or this could trigger possibly some bad memories if it's been of a violent or sexual nature. So just be forewarned in, in that department. But by all means, if you really would like to experience an exceptional work, really creating this band of Victorian era talented people and and very imperfect which we've seen before with alan moore and just about every one of his works his strength is to bring to the table those who have a certain talent a certain gift but then also show their achilles heel now and then too so i think it would fit if we bookend our discussion with bringing this back to the comics the medium that it's in and the idea that this is a victorian era jla and when you look at the main characters each of them has a phenomenal ability or something so dramatic about them you've got the the rebel in nemo who is an immense genius and able to craft this amazing vehicle by which he can travel under the water you've got the brutish strength of mr hyde you've got the keen hunting intellect of 
Ellen Quartermain. You've got the Invisible Man. What, you know, the, talk about a superpower. And then you've got Mina Murray, who pulls them all together. And her superpower is her calm, her ability to keep the group focused on what needs to be done. And that's no small feat at all. Indeed, JJ, indeed. And I think not a better quote. And again, this is another one that primes the reader for what they're about to experience in the book than by the character in the book, Campion Bond. The British Empire has always encountered difficulty in distinguishing between its heroes and its monsters. Wow. How fitting of a summary to complement what you have just brought to light. Absolutely in agreement with Campion Bond. So, JJ, any other last thoughts as it relates to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Well, there's something about Moore's writing that always makes me, and, and you know, our listeners are probably have you know, picked up on this by now, but, you know, I really love comics and I really love role-playing games and where the two meet is just a fun little space on the Venn diagram. And just, there's such a wealth of opportunity here to put together these characters from the literary world, put them into a situation. And like the scenario that's painted over these six issues would be such wonderful fodder for the gaming table. It's it's ripe with ideas to steal for any game. The plots and twists of the villains, the banter and conflict of the players, or in this case, the league itself, as they try not to go at each other, but you know, stay focused on their stay focused on their their mission, their goal. And really it just I could see this, you know, everybody picking their favorite character from a particular era and saying, okay, you know, you guys have been pulled together to solve a mystery or to stop something from happening. Yeah, that's an outstanding take on that. And indeed, there are elements in this, JJ, as I was reading it, I felt that, hmm, it's a little reminiscent of some of the groups that turn of the century Cthulhu scenario from that particular RPG. And yeah, so there, there is a lot of this is really ripe for inspiration. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So kids, we had a blast reading this one, but we really would love to hear from you once you have read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. If you could leave us a message via the Anchor app or send us an email at kirbyskidspodcast at gmail.com. And JJ, I'm going to leave you with the last word on this spectacular graphic novel. When the crown is in danger, there are always those that rise to protect it. Join the league in keeping it safe. We're Kirby's Kids. Hey,